This is your host, Casey DeShock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There, you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. This is episode 10, and my guest today is Colleen Mondor. She is the author of The Map of My Dead Pilots, The Dangerous Game of Flying in Alaska. Colleen is a historian and is focused heavily on aviation in Alaska. Colleen, welcome to Alaska Conversations. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so the the primary focus today will be talking about aviation in Alaska, some of its history, some of the accidents, performance records of other carriers in the region, and a lot of the people listening to this podcast, Alaskans generally have experience with and direct, you know, they're directly reliant on uh, air traffic in some way, shape, or another, and a lot more than in the lower 48, but in rural Alaska especially, it's an extremely important lifeblood for the community, for the cargo hub, for even just making the economy work whatsoever. So you were telling me a little bit about a story, Ben Ileson, and we're right in the yes. middle we're right in the middle of the basically ninety year anniversary there. So why don't we start with just going way back, way back, ninety years, talking about Ben <laughs> Ileson and you can tell me a little bit about this story and I know that some of it has to do with my birthdays on January twenty fifth. Some of it has to do and and coordinates with my birthday. <laughs> yeah, Ben Ileson is probably the most famous bush pilot in Alaskan history. Um, folks in the interior, of course, you're familiar with Ileson Air Force Base, Ileson High School, that sort of thing. Ben came up to Alaska in the mid-1920s, and he was the first one to fly the mail. He was the first one to say, we can do this, and that initiated the whole um, dog musher versus aviation war, which, of course, aviation won in terms of transporting the mail. Ben also is the first pilot to fly across the Arctic and in Antarctica, along with the polar explorer George Wilkins. They flew across the Arctic, got into the Cape Parade for it. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, um, worldwide renowned. On November 9, 1929, Ben and his mechanic, Earl Borland, were flying a contract to an icebound ship called the Namuk, which was across the coast of Siberia. The Namuk had on board millions of dollars of birds as they were trying to get to New York City markets, and they contracted the company that Ben ran to fly the birds out. It was a $50,000 contract in 1929, so just try to wrap your head around how much money that was. There were two aircraft that took off. They'd already made um, successful trips, and on November 9th, two aircraft took off from Teller, just up by the Nome. Um, one with pilot Frank Levant turned back over the Bering Strait, um, and, and Earl did not to continue on, and they didn't make it to the ship. And the ship um, had telegraph radio 
our telegraph office, they were able to maintain contact with um, the outside world quite easily and immediately reported, uh, you know, after a day or so that Ben had not arrived. So what followed was what is still the largest and longest search in Alaska state history, even larger and longer than the Bog baggage search. And um, everybody looked for Ben. It involved the, the U.S. Um, Canada and Russia. There were Siberian bog mushers. It's a massive search, largely spearheaded by Joe Carson, another famous Alaskan bush pilot. On January 25th, 1930, the wreckage of Ben's aircraft was found. On February 12th, Earl Moreland's body was found. And on February 18th, Ben also was found. So this is kind of a big deal in Alaska aviation history because when you talk about bush pilots and the whole bush pilot myth and flying to save people, that sort of thing, then it's kind of the beginning of that mythology because the story that came out of this search was that Eileson and Borland died trying to save people who were stuck on an icebound ship, but that was not the case. Um, it was kind of a thing that got secret by the media in the lower 48 and just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, it was an economic, it, it was about money. Um, they were science great, which is what, you know, happens every day in Alaska. And the people on Bananas were never in danger. In fact, the ship sailed out that summer um, perfectly fine. <laughs> so, but when you look at the um, mythology of the fish pilot in Alaska, it, it begins heavily with with Ben Alston, and we're right in the middle of the anniversary of when that all began. Well, what is it about flying above the Arctic? What was it? Was it just simply the Arctic, or did it it pose additional challenges due to the weather, the coldness of... Oh, sure. And it wasn't mapped. Nobody knew. There, There was no... There were no charts for what it looked like in 1929. And he didn't just fly like up to Barrow in 1929. They actually navigated all the way across the Arctic. And um, that was a really big deal because nobody, you know, they, they didn't know anything about what the conditions were going to be in terms uh, and the impact on the aircraft, the cold. Um, the first time they tried to do it, they actually had to land on the ice. Uh, they had a mechanical problem, and then actually ended up getting um, part of a finger amputated. They were stuck out, <laughs> stuck out on the ice for a while until they were able to get back in. So the biggest thing probably is just because there were no charts, and that's a very big deal about um, Alaska to this day. You know, is um, there's still efforts going on to map every square inch of it? Of course. You know, now it involves satellites and everything else. But just imagine what it was like to fly that first time from Fairbanks to Barrow, you know, in the 1920s. You knew there were mountains, but you didn't know what was on the other side of the mountains. And you didn't know how high the mountains were. And you didn't know if you were flying in equipment that could go high enough to get over the top of those mountains. And you, so so you, didn't, even, you didn't even know how tall that the mountains were, is, is what you're saying. You know? No. And, and that's going to no. significantly impact what you're able to do in... At that time, if you're going back 90 years, you don't even have runways in between where you're going because most of the communities, I'm sure, didn't have runways, only maybe the major hubs at that time. There was absolutely nothing there. There was nothing there at all. But, um, a large number of the runways that in Alaska today, this is a massive buildup that occurred during World War II. 
So prior to World War II, no, there's no runways. Um, very famously, when Ben came back from one of his early mail trips, like 1925, um, it was dark. And what they did is they had a bunch of cars in Fairbanks line up on the ball field and shed their headlights so that he would be able to land. So, yeah, that's what you're talking about. Um, there was just absolutely nothing. And that's that's just an incredible thing to think about. The you know sometimes we some of the early some of the early pioneers of aviation and etc. We give them we give them the credit that we would to the the founding fathers of the country etc. Because and maybe we maybe we exaggerate some of their exploits like you were talking about <laughs> with you know whether or not you're saving somebody or whether you're going to pick up furs etc. But it's just it is something that's incredible and it's became just an absolute folklore. You were talking about the Bush pilot myth and was that directly related to Ben Ileson or have we had other instances where we've expanded on that? Um, It's the whole era, the 1920s, basically 1925 to 1930, because um, it was a, a huge big deal um, how quickly aviation transformed the landscape in Alaska. Um, you know, things that took weeks before, you know, as far as, tar- far as transportation, could now be accomplished literally in a matter of hours. So that had a, a huge positive impact um, from everything from transporting sick people into town or injured people to food and supplies back and forth. And then when you get into industry and it's, it's positive impact on mining and those types of industries, it's, it's huge as well. So there's truth to the myth in that what they accomplished was galvanizing for, for the um, territory, absolutely galvanizing. But um, what we seem to forget is the stories that sound better are that you saved the sick baby from death and not, okay, they were flying this because they were getting paid. They were getting paid to transport these materials. They were getting paid to transport um, these people. And most certainly, um, they they went out of their way to save and provide assistance. But at the end of the day, you know, they had to get paid or, you know, I mean, somebody's got to pay for gas. Somebody's got to pay to fix these airplanes. So it's, it's economics. And we seem to, in Alaska, we seem to get away from the fact that, you know, economics is what drives the engine more than anything else. Well, in their, their time, they wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't, if they didn't find some sort of uh, profit in it. But that's, so that's the 1930s. We've got no runways and the, <laughs> the aircraft is starting, just airframes in general are starting to transform the way that we that we interact, that the economy is built. And there's one interesting thing I think about is that when the economy, if the economy is developed as the airplane is coming in, because prior to that, the economy was very slow, not having those road systems, it means that we, Alaska almost skipped a step. You know, we didn't build the roads that, and it's a, it's a difficult geography to build the roads, but you can imagine that if Alaska had, taken off 40 years earlier, the necessity of the roads would have been different than what it was when we really started building up, heading into World War II. Yeah. Now. Yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, go ahead. So, so then we get into World War II, and there are <laughs> yeah. programs like the Lend-Lease program. I don't know if you can speak a little bit about the Lend-Lease program, but those are fascinating projects that we had going on up here that some people may mm-hmm. not may not know that much about. Um, Lend-Lease was 
uh, oddly, just what it sounds like. We were lending and leasing aircraft um, to uh, the Soviet Union on one side and then to Britain on the other. So Alaska obviously was involved in the lend-lease program for the Soviet Union. Um, basically, this is prior to the U.S.'s involvement in World War II, but what President Roosevelt wanted to make sure was that the Soviet Union and Britain didn't crumble. Uh, under the under attack from Germany, so um, and we had factories. We could churn out the airplanes better than everybody else, and we weren't in the war, so we were able to do this. So what they did, because these other countries, because who became our allies, could not afford to purchase, we um, we did lend lease. And in Alaska, what that meant was we flew. These are primarily bombers, but all kinds of um, heavy aircraft. They're flown up to um, primarily <clears throat> Fairbanks. And this is what became um, Fort Wainwright now in um, Fairbanks. It was called Ladd Airfield at the time. Right. They're flown up to Fairbanks and then out to Nome. And then in Nome, they would be officially handed over essentially to Russian crews. And then the Russians would take them on and then use them to fly in World War II. So we needed runways for these guys. So that's where you see the runway in Nome. That's where you see the runway in Galena. Um, you also see the runway in Northway, which was built, which was part of the way for the planes to get there. So there was massive um, buildup in terms of infrastructure because of Lend-Lease. And it transformed what Alaska looked like. There's World War II is definitely the line of demarcation for um, the territory's development just across the board. There's before World War II and after World War II. And then, of course, once you get into the situation with um, the Japanese attacks on the Aleutians and those threats, that's when you see um, places like ADAC and what is today um, the Dutch Harbor. Dutch was built up because of World War II. So that transformed the way that uh, the number of communities that had a runway. So that would have expanded the capacity of other pilots, maybe less skilled pilots, or maybe it just entices more people to fly up here post World War II. Then we go, yeah, and then we go forward and we get to Eisenhower administration, and we have the interstate, uh, the interstate legislation law national program, and. When they passed that, what a lot of people don't uh, give enough credit to is Alaska is not a state at the time. And so they figure they gave money and projects based on uh, geographic area and, and some other formula. Alaska did not get the same amount of money as everybody else because we were a territory. So then we were underinvested right. in the interstate uh, legislation that built out a lot of the infrastructure in the lower 48. Yeah, and infrastructure, well, you know, you, you have somebody on who could talk to you about the roads and um, maritime infrastructure and that sort of thing. Infrastructure for aviation has been a sticking point uh, forever in Alaska. Now, everybody in the U.S. was pretty much on even keel in the 1920s because aviation was just taking off. So, you know, there was huge swaths of the lower 48 that had no runway. So Alaska wasn't that different. Um, and then, you know, you got into World War II. A lot of things transformed. And then after World War II, what you start to see is not only in, in roads, but you also start to see aviation in the lower 48 ramped up just tremendously, hugely. 
The problem with Alaska, of course, is that we are more dependent on aviation per capita than any other state, but we don't have the population that everybody else has. So as just as recently as September of last year, the um, National Transportation Safety Board had a roundtable in Anchorage talking about uh, aviation safety in Alaska. And um, one of the gentlemen from the FAA said, look, at the end of the day, you're not going to get what you want in terms of infrastructure. It's just not going to happen because Alaska doesn't have the people. So when we talk about infrastructure for aviation, we don't just talk about physical um, in terms of runways and taxiways and uh, maintenance. Um, therein, but we also talk about things like navigational aids and um, and uh, weather cameras and stuff like that. So it's um it's a big problem. It's a continuous problem. And if you get any ten pilots in a room, they're immediately going to start screaming about it, <laughs> no matter where they're from. Well, in Alaska, those the the web cameras and investment in the web cameras. It's it's important. I've flown down the peninsula a little bit with uh, taxi service. And maybe we're going down, getting into the Chignik area, and the reports are that it should be fine. And you turn over through Black Lake Pass, and all of a sudden, what you didn't know was going to be, it's extremely socked in. And you can get yourself into a situation. We've had a pilot killed as recently as maybe 18 months ago, two years ago crash down there going Port Hyden to Perryville, I believe. These areas are very, very microclimate-y. And, and when the mountains yeah. are down there, and when you're not flying at 35,000 feet and you're coming in for landings, it's, it's, it is much different than what people would think of if they're listening to this and they've only had experience with major 737-type planes. In smaller planes, it's significantly different. It is, and um, it's a good good use of the term microclimate. It's it's very true. Um, Alaska has so many different microclimates, and the, the weather cameras are something that a lot of people have been pushing for for a while. There's um, 230 weather cameras in Alaska now, all over the place, um, and that came about. Those are FAA and. That came about starting, I want to say, around the year 2000. Um, they started putting them in. And then we also have things called um, AWOS, uh, Automated Weather Operating Systems, um, other pieces of equipment that are out there so that um, pilots can go online and look up and determine what the weather is. The cameras are great because it gives you a good picture. The only problem with the cameras is, you know, if the camera's under snow, then, then you're stuck. Yeah, yeah, somebody's <laughs> but, got to yeah, you know, and a lot of them are in some pretty remote locations, as you can imagine. The cameras are one key component, though, of um, that infrastructure that we were talking about. They're, they're one piece of that pie. It's a pretty big pie, and there's a lot of different parts to it, and cameras are definitely part, a big part. So, and if we're going uh, back in time, let's just talk a little bit pre-statehood as we're moving forward mm -hmm. in the technology of it. A lot of the yeah. airplanes that we look at today... It, uh, were produced pre-statehood. I mean, there is a significant number of oh, Cess sure. Cessnas that were in the 60s, that seems, but 1950s, 1940s, for whatever reason, I think like 1946 to 1958 or something like that was kind of this golden era of producing a lot of private planes. So the the aircraft themselves were pretty capable unless they've been seriously modified over the last 70 years. And I'm not, I'm not very sure 
if a 1950s plane that's flying today was the same as the 1950s plane that was flying in 1950. <laughs> um, yeah. Air, well, the thing about airplanes, which is really cool about them, and a lot of the non-flying public don't understand, is that you still have to get inspected. So um, you can have a plane that is decades old. Um, at one point, the company that I worked for in the mid-90s, we had the oldest flying Piper Navajo um, at the time, which was cool. Um, and, and, I mean, it was, I think it was around 30, 35 years old at that time. But they still have to be inspected. They still have to be maintained. Um, engines are constantly, you know, the engines get timed out. You have new engines. There's all sorts of, you know, new props, new landing gear, you know, that type of thing. So it's pretty rare um, to find something that's vintage that somebody's going to fly because, you know, if you've got all original stuff on there, you're talking something from a museum. Um, and who wants to risk that? But anyway, the planes that they flew in the 1950s, the biggest difference between that era and this era is probably going to be um, avionics. It's the tech, the technology that's on board. And um, what you could do then, you'll, I'm sure you've heard people refer to stick and rudder time, you know, a couple instruments on board, and that's it. Ben Eilson's crash, um, his friends attributed to his altimeter freezing up. The altimeter was frozen at 1,300 feet. So what they believed, and there's no way anyone will ever know the truth because there were no accident investigators at that time, but what they believed was the altimeter froze. Ben thought he was at 1,300 feet, and he actually flew the plane into the ground. So there's a huge um, technology leaps that have been made since then. Um, even in the past 20 years, the technology leaps have been unbelievable and that's your big difference about do you know about what time we started actually investigating crashes i mean relatively new or did, did we start doing that quite a while ago sure um actually uh i i know a little bit about this it's kind of transformed over the years it, they were investigated in the 1930s what a lot of people don't realize is that aviation was under the department of commerce back in the 20s and 30s. There was no Department of Transportation. The Department of Transportation did not become a separate department with its own secretary in the in the cabinet until 1967. So you have this um, law that's passed in 1926, which is the Air Commerce Act, and that said that pilots had to be licensed. And interestingly enough, Ben Eilton was the pilot who licensed his fellow pilots in Alaska. Um, the first female licensed pilot in Alaska, Marvel Cropton, her certificate was signed by Ben. So um, you had the initial laws which were put in place, which was just the, like, hey, let's license all these people. <laughs> because they, had, they only licenses that they had really were to fly at air races and that type of thing. And you go into the 1930s, and that's when you sign a precursor to the FAA and the NTSB. The FAA didn't become a separate entity until um, 1958. And then the big thing is the NTSB, that's the National Transportation Safety Board. So that is not until 1967. So what we know of today, where like the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash, which everyone has seen, and the NTSB is down there with this major force, and, and they're going over the wreckage, and it, there'll be like a, a year to two year long investigation. That sort of thing didn't even begin to really happen until um, 1967. Prior to that, we did have accident investigation, but it wasn't nearly as thorough or complete as, um, as it is today. I wonder if there was a, a large uptick in crashes around 
that time or a sign some significant crash that that triggered that or or whether people just figured out well this is kind of a dangerous thing maybe we can learn something about it you know <laughs> it was um it was more the evolution of so much air travel you did have a significant crash in 1958 um that was an air carrier crash you can't remember the name of it off the top of my head um that basically what the country said was there's so many people that are being killed, um, <laughs> which doesn't sound good, but that we didn't understand what was happening. And it wasn't so much that numbers were stratospheric, but numbers without answers was the problem. And um, that's what kind of pushed the federal government to say, we need to look more into this. So um, oh, that was United Airlines. It crashed in Southern Nevada on April 21st, um, 1958. There were 42 people that were killed. And that's when you, um, you start to say, okay, we really need to get in there and um, and look at what's causing these things. And, and so then you would have had with Nick Baggage, when he got into his crash, you're talking about 1971, I think? And um, it, it was it was right there in the 19, 1971, 1970, but that would have been investigated, uh, and that wreckage was never found. Right. That was actually 1972, and it was Nick Baggage, who, of course, was a congressman, and um, Hale Boggs, who was Speaker of the House. Um, the thing that came out of the Baggage Boggs crash, which, yeah, that's, that's the big crash that everybody has always um, wanted to find the wreckage from. There was legislation in process at that time for emergency locator transmitters, the beacons on board ELPs, which go off on aircraft um, on impact. Um, that legislation was already passing. There had been an earlier crash in the lower 48 where um, it took so long to find it. So the baggage box crash just kind of like forced it through faster. It, it certainly didn't cause it, but it forced it through a little bit faster. And that's when, um, after 1972, is when you see the requirement for ELTs on board aircraft. So that hopefully we would not have missing aircraft anymore. But of course, in Alaska, we know we still do. Yeah, it's, it, and it's difficult especially when they're up in, in mountain locations, difficult to get to the recovery. And then just kind of the terrain can swallow some of that at, at times. I know that they've even had wreckage that uh, appears out of, uh, basically becomes almost glaciated, I believe, a, a few crashes that way. And yeah. as it recedes, then all of a sudden the wreckage reappears, etc. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, you... I'm out here in Dillingham, Bristol Bay, and for anybody not in Bristol Bay listening, um, 10 months out of the year, we have, a, you can always charter, you can always grab an air taxi through um, Lake Clark Air, Grant Aviation serves some of the area, but if you're going back and forth between Dillingham and town, you're primarily flying with Raven, and it used to be Penn Air. Raven came in, and it still operates as a plane that looks like Penair, but it's offer operated by Raven. And you wrote a story in October for ADN. It's actually October 31st, if anybody wants to look it up. But the title of it is The Sobering History of Crashes by Alaska's Biggest Rural Air Carrier. Most of rural Alaska is serviced somewhat by Raven or one of the Raven subsidiaries. So yeah. what is the history um, 
really, I think it begins sometime around 2000, but it could be even more recent, like 2008. Uh, you start to see, or you've looked into some of the the uh, safety record, if you will, of Raven. Raven is a big company, and the primary members of the Raven Air Group are Penn Air, uh, Highland Aviation, what was formerly Highland Aviation, um, what was formerly Era Aviation, and then to a lesser extent, Frontier Flying Service out of Fairbanks. So what happened was back um, around 2002, Senator Ted Stevens put through what was called the Rural Services Improvement Act. And what this was supposed to do was make aviation safer, commercial aviation safer in Alaska. And the way it was done was it completely upended the manner in which the mail, primarily BIPOC mail, is distributed in Alaska. Now, people outside have no idea how dependent aviation, commercial aviation in Alaska is on moving the mail. The only reason that passenger tickets are the slightest bit affordable is historically has been because of the mail. And of course, bypass, which is technically mail, which bypasses um, the uh, goes directly to the carrier from the company that is providing it. Um, bypass is a huge part of that. Bypass is the thousands of pounds, which will go essentially to a store, sometimes to a school, sometimes to a camp, that sort of thing. So, um, Senator Stevens felt that the, one of the ways that you could make um, commercial aviation in Alaska safer after the 80s and 90s, and there were quite a few accidents, was to transform the way the bypass was distributed. And the idea was to give preference to the larger companies. The thought being that the larger companies, and these are companies that operate um, under a different section of the Federal Aviation Regulation, which is called Section Part 121, which is like like Delta and Southwest and, and Alaska Airlines operate under. Those regulations are more stringent. They operate bigger airplanes. That's why you see the, the Bob 2000, and 330, the Dash 8, which are operated by um, Raven. Bigger airplanes, so, and they have more stringent rules as opposed to the part uh, air, air companies that operate under Part 135, which are the smaller air taxis and commuters. Those are the guys flying the Cessna 207s, the Caravans, the Piper Navajos, which are still very common. Um, the Haviland otters and beavers, those guys are part 135 guys. So, not to get too complicated, but when this went through, what happened was a lot of companies went out of business because preference got given to the big guys. And the big guys got the first piece of the pie when it came to the bypass mail. So, what happened in the aftermath, when you look at how many companies were, distributed, were given bypass mail in, say, 99, versus um, a few years later after refill was passed, you see that the landscape is transformed. Companies are just gone. Arctic Circle Aviation is gone. Kate Smite is gone. Olsen is gone. Baker is gone. Various flying services gone. Companies like Tana Air all of a sudden shrink down to a small company that operates out of a, a smaller um, village. McGrath is going to serving. There's a lot of people that would say, okay, this is great because some of these companies did not have a flying record, but really everybody had very comparable records in the 80s and 90s with um, exception. When you get into the post recent era and you look at what's left, you see Frontier Flying Service and Hagelin um, get very good. And Frontier was a Part 121 carrier. It was poised 
to um, take over, to purchase and merge, and that's what it did. So in 2008, you have a merger between Highland Aviation and Frontier Flying Service. And then in 2009, this company, which is now called Frontier Alaska, purchases Era Aviation. Okay, and it then becomes Era Alaska. Um, the company had to change its name, however, because their helicopters was a completely separate company, and they didn't like that there was just continuous mix-up between um, Air Alaska and Air Helicopters, which had absolutely nothing to do with each other. So that's when the company rebranded itself as Raven, and that's in 2014. Um, Air Aviation certificate formally changed to Corvus Airlines, so you have Corvus which used to be here, and you have Frontier Flying Service, and you have Highland Aviation. Now, um, and then, um, one, I just can say that Panair was purchased at bankruptcy last year, or yeah. sorry, 2018. One, one second with this one. So if, we, if we're if we talking about Raven, when when Raven comes into being, Raven is owned in, owned and operated in by Anchorage owners or by Alaskan owners or... Or initially, was it um, Alaska? Yes, it was always initially Alaska. Um, Highland Aviation and French Flying Service, this is where you get with the, um, the Hajikovichs, the Twinkos, and the Highlands. Those are all Alaskan names, Alaskan families. Those were family-owned companies. Um, and then they purchased Era Aviation outright. So it's still the Hajikovichs, the Twinkos, and the Highlands that are running the company. Um, there was a financial crunch in 2015, and by now it's, it's called Raven Alaska. Um, there's a financial crunch, and what happened is the, the Tito's and the Highlands are bought out, and the high commissions went to a Delaware-based corporation. Um, it's a venture capital company. It's called J.F. Lehman Company. It's based um, in the East Coast, and along with another um, capital company called W Capital Partners, another equity firm in New York City, um, they took over Raven. And it's now called Raven Air Group. The Hydrocomitics have a minority interest in it, but it is no longer being run by an Alaskan-owned company. And so Raven Air Group, then they have other operations probably outside of Alaska that perhaps they run in other locations, or is Raven Air Group formed just for well, Alaska? Raven, the companies that own, the equity firms that own Raven, which is J.F. Lehman and, um, and W Capital Partners, these aren't aviation companies. These are companies, these are places, an equity firm buys companies. Okay. So this is not an aviation company that owns Raven. It's a money company that owns Raven, I guess is the way to put it, with um, the Hydrogenics as well as minority owners. Well, so Raven came out here, my, my experience with it in Dillingham, Raven came to Dillingham and some people were excited because it was going to introduce more competition into the market. Um, Penair essentially went away shortly thereafter and was swallowed by Raven. And so the exact opposite happened. But Raven hasn't had a great track record with uh, performance, at least in the eyes of many of the consumers out here, but you you write about their, not necessarily their performance as far as picking you up on time, getting you where you need to go, but on their, really on their safety history and that it is actually 
quite a bit outside, probably outside the norm for a large air carrier like Raven to have the number of crashes that they've had. Yeah, I am. What I did was I tracked the crashes back to 2008, which is when the conglomerate that came to be called Raven was born. And that was the first merger between Tycare and Hagwood. So that's, that's what I um, started tracking for that article. And so you're looking at basically about 20 accidents and incidents in that period, um, several fatality accidents. Uh, probably the one people um, know the most is the 2014 crash in, in St. Mary's when four people were killed and six people were injured. But there have been several, and the most recent was Penn Air in Dutch Harbor, where you had one fatality and four injuries. Um, the reason I started looking at this is because it operates under various different names. When you go into the NTSB um, accident database, if you didn't know these were all one company, you wouldn't know. You would say, oh, this is Taglands, or oh, this is Corvus, or oh, this is Penair. But it's one company making operational decisions. Even though they might have separate directors of operation and separate chief pilots and separate directors of maintenance, the overall safety culture and the overall operational decision-making at the top um, is coming from the same place. And so what I look at as somebody who studies um, commercial safety in Alaska is, okay, how is this company? What kind of a track record does this company have? And when you started looking at the numbers, you're like, a lot of bad decisions have been made um, over the years. So that was part of why that article was written. I didn't want Penair to appear as um, as a singular accident. Oh, Penair has had this crash. And let's look at the history of Penair. Well, the history of Penair started a year before that crash in much harder because before that, it was completely separate ownership with the Siebert family, which is completely unrelated to what happened in October. So I wanted to group Penair with the history of Raven so people can understand. Well, when you're talking about the Sieberts, uh, it, they've been out here as Pen Air, I think in, in some way since maybe the maybe the forties or fifties or something. The very yeah, beginning. or in the fifties. Yeah, yeah, in the very beginning, had they had a, a pretty poor history of, of crashes and heading out towards Dutch Harbor, they've been doing it for quite some time. Yeah, Pen Air, um, and to keep in mind, it's almost impossible to crash accidents prior to, well, when the NTSC was formed in 1967, their database will go back to the 1960s, but it's sketchy. Um, the best data probably starts around 1980. But in terms of Panera's accident history, um, Panera's accident history was not substantial. There was one very bad crash in 2001 in Gillingham when 10 people were killed. Um, other than that, it's kind of um, a predictable accident history in the 80s and 90s, comparable to everybody else. Um, a lot of small accidents um, where no one is injured, you know, typical accidents on the ground, that sort of thing. So, Panera itself did not come into this uh, into bankruptcy with a substantial accident history. Um, a lot fatality accident they had was in Fort Hyden in 2006. And then they went into bankruptcy in 2018. So that's a long time when you compare it to what Raven's history was um, from 2008 going forward. And 
when we're looking at Raven now, most of their, if you go back to 2008, when I look at your, your list, I mean, the majority of the crashes have been um, Cessna 207, Cessna 208s, these smaller aircraft that don't, that don't have the same caliber that you would think of in a Dash 8 or a Saab 2000. So it's been smaller aircraft that, and those smaller aircraft are more, is it, is it safe to say more likely to crash or it's not as surprising when it's smaller aircraft or, or is it more something on the pilot when you look at some of this history? Okay. Absolutely not on the aircraft. By far probably the safest group of um, pilots in Alaska are the single pilot owner operators. And we get people who run their own companies. Okay, so it's a single pilot and a single aircraft. They usually operate really tiny, you know, obviously it's one aircraft, air taxi type situation. And those are not big planes, obviously. A lot of um, otters and beavers, they have one otters and beavers, a, a lot of um, Cessna 207s and um, K32s, Piper, service if you have an individual that has one plane that does provide this service he may be more likely to cancel a flight during a given day because all of his investment is tied up into 
his one plane, his one time, that's his livelihood. I think that this is somewhat of the, uh, of the conclusion that you're drawing anyways, and tell me if I'm wrong, but in other operators, as they grow, let's say Raven, there are other metrics on time performance and etc. that sometimes the culture can push pilots probably outside of their, maybe the pilots are even outside of their comfort zone. I don't know if, if they would be, if they have the normal, Hey, stop work. I'm not flying this thing type of mentality or whether the corporate environment pushes the planes past where the pilots are comfortable going sometimes. There's always pressure. Um, in 1980 and in 1995, the NTSB did safety studies on Alaskan um, air taxi commuter pilots to look at pressure. And they found in 1980 and 1995, there were specific areas of pressure. There was passenger pressure, please get me home, get me home, get me home. Um, there was pressure from the post office because if you didn't deliver the mail within a certain period of time, it would be transferred to your competitors. Um, so you lose that money. So there was pressure from the company, um, take the job room, leave it up to a pilot who will. And you only get paid, a lot of cases, particularly back in the 90s, you only get paid when the props are turning. So you get paid by the flight hour. Um, the converse of that is, okay, you can put on salary, but then they're like, justify your salary. <laughs> pressure on the pilot to fly to keep their job. And then the last one was self-induced, what has been termed special pilot syndrome, which they say is the pilot's desire to get the job done, to be the pilot that is able to accomplish it. And I wrote about a lot of this in my book because I, I saw it in the 90s. I saw it with um, the company where I worked, and then I certainly saw it with other pilots that I knew at other companies. So what happens though when you get a, a big company and we can look for example at say Taquan Air, which had um, it had two crashes last year and then there was a crash in the summer of two thousand eighteen and a factual report is out on that one. So it gives us more information. Um, the NTSB is um, pretty close to coming out with their probable cause. And that um, two thousand eighteen crash on Jumbo Mountain. And so this is down in southeast in Mississippi Fjords. Taquan um, flies a ton of tourists. They fly them off of the cruise ships, and they fly them to to and from the lodges. And in that case, you had a pilot fly um, from visual conditions into instrument conditions and um, and hit the mountain. So the questions that they look at in an accident like that are, why did this pilot continue this flight? Um, in that particular case, you actually have um, text messages from the passenger, one of the passengers in the back of the plane texting his buddy who was up in the co-pilot seat saying, I can't see, we, you know, we need to land. We need to tell the pilot we've got to pick this thing down. And this is a plane on slopes, so it was capable of doing that. So it was obvious to everyone on board that this aircraft was not in good um, condition. The pilot did not have good situational awareness. So what the NTSB will look at is why did this pilot do this? And part of the answer might always be that the pilot felt self-induced pressure because the pilot wanted to accomplish the flight. Was the pilot also under pressure from the company? We don't know. Were the passengers, before they got on the plane, saying we want to go? Was, in this particular case, the lodge saying we want to go? These are all things that they will look at. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, every part of this is immaterial. It's immaterial because what needs to matter is the company needs to say no. The company needs to say our pilot will not be put in a situation where he or she can be persuaded by passengers or by cruise ship employees or 
you know, by lodge owners or anybody else. The company needs to insert itself and say, we will not let you get pressured by this. And the company needs to say, in turn, we will not pressure you. That is where things break down in Alaska. It felt like, it felt like 2019. And you wrote about this as well uh, in ADN, another great story. You published it uh, this year, end of January, so we can find it in ADN. But 2019 was not a good year for Alaska aviation as far as crashes go. And when you start talking, it seemed as if Southeast had a little bit of, uh, at least it was highlighted a lot. It felt like a couple of back-to-back crashes that were fatality-driven, you know, and um, you worry about it being so heavily tourist you know, the, the tourism industry growing so quickly or becoming so important in Southeast. It has been important for a long time, but a lot of people coming to Southeast happens in Fairbanks as well, but their Alaska trips are once in a lifetime. And so yeah. the passengers have a feeling of that they're willing to take a little bit of extra risk because this is their once in a lifetime deal. And, and, then as you were saying, the pilot wants to deliver that to the customer. So there is that additional risk that you were just talking about. But in Southeast last year, we did have, or you can just talk about 2019 in general, we did have a pretty bad year for crashes in 2019. Um, we did. Um, in 2019, we had overall... I mean, this includes all aircraft crashes. So this is even, you know, people who are flying their own airplanes. We had 85 total accidents. Um, now, that number itself is not um, unusual. The average for the 2010s is basically 90 accidents a year. And, and those numbers are way down. Compared to in the 1990s, we averaged like 168 crashes a year. Um, in 2000, 116. So we've come down quite a bit. Um what happened in 2019, though, is we had um, 13 fatality accidents, and then this is where the number gets bigger. We had 29 fatalities, and that's a big number. Um, the average number of fatalities by decade in the 2010s was 19. Um, in the 2000s, it was 22. So we have a lot of fatalities. Um, 20% of the crashes that happened last year were um, commercial aviation crashes. And that's part 135. And then, of course, the, the Pan Air crash, which was part 121. So 2019, saw, we're not continuing to decrease our accidents, I guess, is the problem. And then when you look at the types of accidents, which is what's critical, are these preventable accidents. What you see in 2019 is a lot of similarity to what you saw um, 10 years prior, 20 years prior, 30 years prior. You have a, a mid-air collision between Taquan and Mountain Air Service um, on the way back to Ketchikan in beautiful weather. Weather was not a factor. So it's a high-density, what they've termed a high-density um, traffic environment. A lot of planes because it's summer, as you said, tourism industry. So you look at that and you say, all right, we have all these technological advances. We have good weather. Everybody flying around on there knows that um, there's a ton of people flying around on here. So why did this accident happen? Um, when you look at other specific accidents that took place, um, the Guardian flight accident, which was just over a year ago, that was a pilot flying a twin turbine aircraft beat the 
the Kinger is an exceedingly safe aircraft. He's talking to the tower. He's flying an instrument approach into Cake. So this is a case where you say, all right, he has all the navigational aids. Um, he's flying IFR just as he should. Everything's great. And, and it crashes into the water. So what happened there? Of course, they're still working on all of these. Um, Pac-1 aircraft in Metlakatla is probably the easiest one to explain because you had a float plane pilot who had probably less than 20 hours of total float plane time. So then the question becomes, why is an air taxi company hiring somebody without low float time? And what they're going to say is there's a pilot shortage. And the response to that needs to be, that doesn't explain why you put a pilot with a paying passenger had, um, you know, he had less than 20 hours of float plane time. So you have that one, and it just goes on from there. Um, the most recent uh, accident come to Tuyak. Uh, we don't know much about that at all. Um, that's you commuter service. It just happened last week. Everyone was killed. Um, I'm sure they're looking at weather, and they're looking at um, icing, which can cause a problem with that type of aircraft. Um, weather is certainly a factor in the November 29th accident with security aviation, which was a medevac crash that went down um, near Cooper Landing on the way to Seward. But again, Alaska is very used to saying our weather is so bad. We didn't invent bad weather. And I'm sure that people in upstate New York and in, you know, the upper peninsula of Michigan and around Chicago, you know, they would all say, I'd like to have a word with you about bad weather because <laughs> you know, they have pretty, they have pretty horrific weather. Um, the, the weather doesn't, the weather gods don't reach out of the sky and grab an airplane. Um, so the question becomes, why is this plane in this weather? Why did this plane launch into certain forecasted weather? Why did this plane then continue in this weather? And, and that, again, is where it comes back to operational decisions um, and, and pilot decision-making. And what was really disturbing about 2019 is we've seen all these crashes before. So why are we still doing this? No. The, the one down on the Kenai, that was a, in that situation, we we're talking about a medevac type of situation where other carriers had actually turned down flying and you get to right. a, a pilot where you had talked about saying, look, I can get this done. And that's kind of that self-driven pressure to fly into a condition that may, that maybe you wouldn't fly in, but it, it's very hard to stop somebody with the qualifications, et cetera, that thinks that they can do it in that particular situation. That That's a difficult one to stop because it's not a large operation. You know, it's not corporate can well, come down and tell them not to fly. What's interesting about that flight, though, is he was management. And um, from the initial reports on that flight, and this is security aviation on November 29th, that was an off-the-rail high-time pilot. Um a friend of his was quoted in um, ADN saying that he had around 40,000 hours of flight time. That's, uh, that's crazy, crazy high flight time. And he also had a management position there. Now, from the early reports, another pilot was the person who was on standby. You know, they had medevac pilots on standby because they had a medevac contract. Basically, they flew for the medevac company. So they are guaranteed to always have a plane and pilot on standby um this particular pilot and again i'm just i you know this is very early in the investigation but this is the early stuff that has come out publicly this far he took the flight away from the other pilot because the weather was sketchy and said i'll do it okay so yeah then you get into if it's Sketchy enough that two companies have turned it down um, that was guardian flight and life med 
Stewart is a really poorly situation because you, you can't even have night instrument operations in there. Um, the weather was not good. You have to fly around mountains to get in there. So this is a problematic part of the state. You know, we do have, we have lots of different areas which have very specific aviation problems. And this one's problems, steward problems are, are known. This is how you have to approach it. This is how you have to do it. Um, they knew before the pilot knew before he took off that there's some specific problems down there, and that's in all likelihood why he took it away from the other pilot and chose to do it himself. So yes, the NTSB is going to ask the question: Why did this pilot do this? And then you run into a problem there with operational control, where basically a management pilot, yeah, can take the flight. He can decide himself that he can do it. Well, was there a conversation with anybody else in that company's management before he walked out the door? I don't know. And that, I'm sure, will be in the final report, which is going to, it usually takes about a year to two years when you have multiple fatalities. In the in the tech industry, uh, there's been a, an increasing discussion about this particular thing is, so if you go back 10 or 15 years, maybe, 20, maybe you have to go back 20 years now, up-and-comers into the tech industry Many people will say they were substantially better than the people that are coming into the tech industry today. And the reason was because you were, you know, in the early 1990s, you were a 15-year-old kid. You were sitting, your family got a computer or you got a computer through the library. You were operating an MS-DOS command prompt type of <laughs> situation. You really, really understood how that computer was working, thinking, and you understood that that computer can't make a mistake. You know, today people say, well, my computer made a mistake. It's like, no, it's not programmed that way. You pro you <laughs> told it to make a mistake. It can't make a mistake on its own. And so they had that understanding. Well, today, everybody just, it just works. Now, is aviation, is it there potential that aviation could possibly be going that way where not everything was so easy if you go back 20 or 30 years? So uh, the the margin or the pilots aren't, uh, learn maybe the pilots don't have the same sort of experiences that they might have had before the before a lot of new technology came in or is that not a factor today um i think the bigger problem still remains the human factor decision um there's certainly you know as we talked to before there's um some pretty amazing avionics on board aircraft but here's the thing when you learn to solo, you still, you're in the airplane and you still have to physically take off. This isn't something that's done in a simulator and you're in the airplane alone. And you talk to every pilot will tell you what that feels like. I mean, we all have a very clear cut memory of that moment when you turn your head and there's nobody else in that airplane. And you know that the only way you're going to get down again is if you do it. And, and most pilots solo around 10 to 12 hours of flight time. So that has not changed. Um, certainly, the avionics and the technology has changed a lot. And, and you'll hear plenty of older pilots who will say, you know, they're looking at screens in the cockpit now. And, and we do have that. There's, you know, you can get aircraft that have screens in there that show you you know, um, a moving, what they call moving map technology as you fly over the terrain, the terrain moves with you and you can see the, um, the height of the mountains around you and all that type of thing. And that's certainly not the same as when Russ Merrill pioneered Merrill Pass, um, you know, by flying out of Anchorage 
in the 1920s and I'm finding the way through the mountains to, you know, to the Waikiki Delta. Um, it's, it's hugely different from what it was like in the past. But in terms of accidents, the, the bad decisions are still um, largely being made on the ground. Um, a case in point, if you go back to Penair Flight 3296, one of the things that has come up in the initial factual report or investigative report, which is out, and that's like a seven-page report that came out on it, Penair under the Seabird had a 300-hour minimum requirement for the pilot in command in the SOB 2000 going into Dutch Harbor. Dutch Harbor, every pilot who's flown in there has told me it's a squirrely airport. Everybody knows that because of the winds. So they had a 300-hour requirement. Um, after the purchase, the ops manual for Penair became that that 300-hour requirement could be waived by the chief pilot. So the chief pilot could decide you don't need the 300 hours that they used to need going into to Dutch. And now, um, when you look at what the pilot, the pilot and co-pilot each had about 100 hours in that aircraft going in there. So that that has nothing to do with the Saab 2000. That has nothing to do um, even with Dutch Harbor. What that has to do with is a decision on the part of the company. How much experience are we going to require? to fly in there. And the company that owned it before, the owner that been on Penair before, said we're going to require an excessive amount. Now, the company that owns it today decided we don't need to. So that's, you know, that's what I look at. I look at always human factors to me, um, and more so than anything else. It's always human factors. And 90% of the time, those human factor decisions were made on the ground. When you're talking Dutch Harbor, the Seabirds, uh, Pen Air, they are Southwest Alaska, born, raised. I mean, they lived it out here. Now you have Raven. Oh, sure. You know, it, it's completely different. So when they put that three hundred hours on to go into Dutch, there is a there are numbers and numbers and numbers of people, or they had they have made that flight and seen that flight. Now you have Raven operating it, waving that simply to get the job done. Apparently. Um, and you have that now does NTSB because that 300 hours was something that was corporately driven. I mean, it's not like we're looking at that as well, a federal regulation or anything. Right. It's a the 300 hours is the minimum that, that um, Pen Air had in our team. So the pilot, he actually was flying up and had, had considerable time. I think he had about 14,000 hours of flight time, which is considerable time. The question becomes how much time did this? EIC, but the co-pilot had very low flight time. So we're primarily talking about the pilot in command, the captain. How much time did this captain have in the SOM 2000? And how much time did this captain have physically in Dutch Harbor? Because that's, that's two different qualifications. You know, there's the aircraft, how well do you know the aircraft? And then there's this particular airport, which is known to um, to be, a, you know, it's not a walk in the park. It's a difficult airport. Now, keep in mind, Mark Air and Alaska Airlines both flew 737s into Dutch Harbor. So it's not like the, you know, oh, my gosh, this has always been a dangerous airport for, for the top 2000. And keep in mind that um, Penn Air has been flying um, – the Seabirds, when they owned Pen Air, had been flying the Fob 2000 in there for a couple of years. So there's a 300-hour requirement, and that's in the company's operations manual. 
the GOM, and, and in their offset. Now, those are things that are approved by the FAA. So if you put something in your manual, then yes, it is it's a requirement. You have to adhere to what's in your manual. So just making something up, if you said that pilots had to have their hair dyed blue every day when they were flying, if it's in your ops press and in your ops manual, then they have to have blue hair every time they fly. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. might as well be yeah, a regulation. <laughs> so so now, the three is the only... Go ahead. So now you, so you had the, the 2019, and before you answer this question, I guess let me let me, let me me you finish what you were saying there on on the uh, manual on these regulations, and then I'll, I'll follow up on that. Okay. So the, the final thing is there's a waiver. And what it said was we could waive the 300-hour requirement that you had to have 300 hours in the airplane before you could fly it in the Dutch Harbor. Okay, we can waive this 300-hour requirement if the chief pilot says, you know what, you don't need it. Okay. So that was in there, which means the chief pilot had to sign a, a formal waiver, and then that had to be, you know, filed away. The FAA could sign it. So the question on this in Pen Air Flight 3296 is, did this pilot have a waiver? Now, what we know, what, um, and, and I reported that in the piece at ABN, is shortly after the accident, the chief pilot was removed from her position and is no longer chief pilot at Pen Air. So what we will look for in the final probable cause report is, did this pilot have a waiver? And also the NTSB, I'm sure, is asking if the pilot did have a waiver, why? Why was the waiver given? Because one of the key questions about that flight is um, is why why that landing was attempted with that tailwind and, and in the configuration that the aircraft was in as far as flaps and everything else. Why did that pilot make that decision? And of course, that comes down to training and, um, and knowledge, right? Experience in the aircraft at the field. And that's why you have, you had a 300 hour requirement. So, brings us all around to questions that have to be asked. Raven, Raven's had all of these, or, or had a significant record of crashes, as you've, you've touched on, and they've got a lot of smaller subsidiaries. So, does that, when when we're looking at that, does it look like Ravens had because you said that in the in the records that you wouldn't be able to put two and two together really unless you were somebody trained like you looking at this stuff all the time. So it doesn't look like Ravens actually had this number of crashes. So going into twenty twenty, is anything it, is Raven on an alert or is Raven, you know, on some sort of suspension or they're they have to prove themselves, or is it as if operations have always been just as they've always been? Um, my understanding is that nothing has changed. Um, there was a big, there was a, Raven had a crash in Kodiak. It was under Highland. Um, it was a caravan, and that was in October 2016. Um, and three people on board, they were all killed. And after the Tokyo crash, the NTSB actually um, came to Alaska. It was the first time. They had held a board hearing into an accident um, in Alaska since the Exxon Valdez. So it was a very big deal. Um, and they had that in Anchorage, places packed full of people. And um, that's where everyone had to, you know, you testify under oath. You're swearing. They have Highland Chief Pilot, Director of Operations at the time. The FAA was there. Um, you know, lots of different groups um, talking about the aircraft and the crash and, and how it happened. Okay, that was in 2016. 
2018. And when, um, right around that same period, just prior to Soviet, the NTSB had issued some urgent safety recommendations concerning um, Highland Aviation because it was on the Highland Certificate. NTSB issued safety recommendations to the FAA, national to, um, in terms of aviation, to the FAA. They don't say, the NTSB doesn't say, um, this company needs to do this. What the NTSB is legally permitted to do is say, the FAA needs to do this with this company. So they direct the FAA. Their safety recommendations do not have to be adhered to. The FAA has to respond to them, but they don't have to adhere to them. As an example, the NTSB has been asking for six miles in school buses forever, <laughs> and they're not there. Um, okay, so in terms of highlands and what happened in 2016, there were urgent safety recommendations that were issued. And this is in the same period. Remember, you had the St. Mary's crash. There was a Russian mission mid-air. There was a crash of people. There were just multiple accidents that took place. So they directed the FAA, look, you need to go take a look at this company and these are things that you need to do and you need to get on it. Um, so that had to happen. So the FAA says that they did. So now you flash forward several years. Um, you had an accident in Atkinsuck. You had an accident in Gamble. You have um, been a charter. So the question becomes, okay, has the FAA really been monitoring um, the Raven Air Group to the degree which they should? And, and it's, it's such a big company. And part of the problem is that the FAA and I'm talking FAA outside, large FAA, they look at Alaska Aviation, and the bulk of it is, you know, Part 135, smaller airplanes um, operating all over the place. And they say, okay, well, these smaller companies don't need that much attention. I mean, when you read the accident reports in, um, for Highland, for Kogiak, and in St. Mary's, you'll see that there's FAA inspectors who are trying to handle, like, 30 or 40 different companies. And that's a lot of work. I mean, that was one of the things that came out of the Taquan Jumbo Mountain investigation. The director of operations for Taquan was the same guy who was director of operations for Grant Aviation. He was based in Anchorage. Taquan is based in Ketchikan. The Juno Fed did not know that this guy was also director of operations for Grant, which is another big company that operates in a completely different part of the country, of the state. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> so, flown, I've flown Grant a lot, and they go all the way over to Togiak, and they're, uh, I mean, I don't think that they go to Stu anymore, but they go all the way down. I think their lowest flight goes yeah. down to Perryville, so you're talking way southwest. Yeah, so why is the director of operations Grant, the same person as the director of operations for Taquan. And, and you know, last year, what did we have? We had Taquan involved in two crashes. We also had Grant involved in a crash in Duffel. So um, you you say to yourself, um, is the FAA able to do everything that it needs to do? Um, and in terms of Raven, it's just a massive company. I mean, because we need to we need to just count everything all together. It's a massive company could spread all over the state, with the exception of Southeast. Um, is the FAA big enough? You know, are, uh, is the FAA giving enough personnel to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen? And so then we go all the way back to Pan Air Flight 3296 and say, okay, did the FAA know that this pilot was given this waiver? Did the, did the principal operations inspector for Pan Air was that within a rare? This pilot has been given this waiver. 
to have much less play time in the Fab 2000 for operations in the Qatar and was the principal operations inspector to the FAA okay with that. That's something that will come out in the investigation. Yeah, I would imagine in an organization, FAA, big FAA, not in Alaska, I'm sure that. I mean, you can't change human nature. There's going to be some of it. Well, look, Alaska does this. There's these sort of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely give waivers. You don't understand how it operates up there. Well, these companies kind of work this way. That's just how it works. I'm I'm sure that there's a lot of that 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 happens. I mean, they can't they can't. Well, and it also, well, it also back really to Ben <laughs> <laughs> and not to pick on Ben, but the attitude outside when they talk about Alaska Aviation is, well, it's been happening there all along. That's what happens in Alaska. That's that fish pilot myth. That's that fish pilot syndrome. Planes always crash in Alaska. If you read um, coverage in the media in the lower 48 after a crash in Alaska, I guarantee you in the first paragraph, you're going to see something about the weather. It could be crystal clear the day the accident happened. And what you're going to read in there is something along the lines of the weather in Alaska is much more predictable. The terrain is much more dramatic. As if mountains reach out and grab airplanes and smash them into them. You're going to see that every single time. And and it will always come back to what people are more dependent on aviation in Alaska. And aviation is that much more dangerous in Alaska. Pilots and companies in Alaska operate under the same set of regulations is in the lower 48. What what we need is the same um, the same care and attention given to our infrastructure as to the lower 48, so that pilots can fly IFR everywhere. In Southeast, what we need probably are some designated flight routes, like they have in the Grand Canyon and in Las Vegas, where you go in the Mystic Fjords one way, you come out another way, and everybody knows where everybody is. Um, and we need not to, um, you know, we need the FAA to be staffed to a point where it, it is able to give attention. And, you know, some of the companies are going to say, we don't need that much attention. But at the end of the day, a lot of the companies do need more attention. And if the attention is paid, then maybe these accidents won't happen. Well, and the, the, the state, so the state needs to do some a little bit of inve- uh, investing into the infrastructure. The FAA really do, needs to. There is the pilot shortage, though. I mean, that. I mean, that's really real. I yeah, think in the industry, it's a real thing. It's a technical thing. Um, when I first came up to Alaska in um, in the early nineties, we were just coming up a glut of pilots, and then all of a sudden we turned around and we were in a bit of a mini shortage. And it's a technical thing. It costs a ridiculous amount of money to become a pilot today. I mean, it's, it's a crazy amount of money. And a lot of the salaries um, have not been raised because uh, it's commensurate with the cost because people like, you know, cheap tickets, right? So the, the pilot shortage is, yeah, the pilot shortage is definitely a real thing. And then you get into a point where you say, well, maybe you just can't have it all. Maybe you can't have it all. Maybe you can't have so many flights a day into certain places. You know, you can only staff it so much. And maybe we shouldn't try to accomplish everything that we think we can accomplish. And maybe some companies are too big. And, you know, I mean, that's a question to ask about Raven. Has this company gotten too big? Because what happens if tomorrow the insurance companies 
And aviation insurance is a huge deal. It's very expensive right now because of what happened with the 737 MAX that raised every aviation company's insurance across the board. Even, you know, companies that fly but with 207, everybody's insurance went up because of the 737 MAX. And then when you look in Alaska, after a year like 2019, insurance rates increase again. So what happens if Dillingham wakes up tomorrow and Raven has lost his insurance? Oh, I mean, they can't fly. We we would be in in serious in serious trouble. I mean, we've already. And this is this is one of the things just broadly about transportation in Alaska to think about. And we'll wrap this up. We're already over a little bit, but um, right now we, there's the ferry system in southeast, or there's air traffic over yeah. here, and every everybody wants to have this perfect. Uh, you know, Dallas to Houston type of uh, transportation system, it's very difficult to maintain. It's very hard to maintain. We, and and the complaints will go on and on about Raven. There seems to be some good reasons to do that. I've been a Raven customer, and I, it's almost a joke to think that the, that you're going to leave the day that, that you're going to leave. I mean, there's no way if, if my, if my family and I, if we're going on a vacation, there's no way our ticket leaves the day that we need to leave. We always have time built in town in Anchorage because we know that the likelihood is we're not going to leave when we're supposed to leave. And so, <laughs> and, and so those are the realities of some of these, you know, and it's much different. Alaska airlines comes in. It's like clockwork. It works. But these smaller carriers, it's uh, it's difficult. But we still want to push three or four flights a day coming out here, and that's yeah. that's a big piece of the reason why so many of our flights do get canceled is because on a given day coming out here with the shuffling of the pilots and the maintenance of of the aircraft, etc., one little thing leads to a whole domino effect of of the aircraft that's actually moving people from Anchorage to. King Sam and Bristol Bay, you know, into Dillingham. Oh. So that's, a, I mean, we we could probably get by with less service, but nobody really wants less service. We want more service, more service, more service. No. No, nobody wants less service. What happens is the combination of multiple factors has led to one massive company. There used to be a lot of other companies, not only in Bellingham, but throughout Alaska. And that's probably another perfect example. At one time, you had Reeves, Mark Air, Alaska Airlines, and Pan Air flying into Dutch Harbor. Now everybody's gone. And you have Raven just flying in with the Dashies. And then you have a lot of charter operations that are going in there now. Because, you know, people still have to move and it's just still got to come out of there. But people in Alaska need to take a look at competition and, and understand that competition is significant and important. And, um, you know, some of this, you can't just all jump on one company. You have to keep in mind that you need a healthy industry in order for the planes to keep flying. And right now, I'm, I'm not certain because of multiple factors that the industry is healthy. And I don't mean that in a safety way. I mean in an economic way. Um, because, too, you know, Raven is so big. Um, a lot of places are left now with only one choice. Where in the past, they had multiple choices. And I think multiple choices are always better. Well, the cost—I mean, in the cost out here now that Raven operates, basically with 
basically alone the costs have from the first day that they started flying here and i know that it was an introductory offer but the prices have gone up over 300 percent over the course of 14 months or something so yeah a bigger safer industry is what a lot of them want and just because you have competition doesn't mean that it should be unsafe that that is not true um you can have a big um industry i mean going to ccac how many companies are operating in and out of ccac how many airlines are in you know flying out of seattle on any given day and that's good you need a lot of those choices and Alaska needs that. They just need a big, safe, competitive um, aviation industry. And right now, we're not exactly there. <laughs> well, this, you know, this this piece of it, it's interesting. I, it's really interesting. I hope that sometime, maybe later into the fall, we can, you'll have some time, and we can talk a little bit about what a bigger safety or a bigger safer industry would look like economically. We could, I can take some more time to look into the information. I really appreciated you talking about all this. It has lots of relevance for me. Um, And you continue to write in ADN so people can keep, keep up with everything that you look at. And I just hope that 2020 is a little bit better year for us than 2019 was. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. And yes, I'm still writing. I'm actually working on an article right now that's taking a bigger look at, at the Pan Air and some other stuff. So, yep, I'll still be out there. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much and have a great day. You too. Thanks, Casey. Bye.